0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Divine Lantern. Thanks for tuning in. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. My name's Jonathan, and I'm part of the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and I'm your host for this week's episode, as we continue the series about the Divine Liturgy. We'll be joined today by Archpriest Father Nabil, who will continue our series of talks on the Divine Liturgy, with a focus on Antiphons 1 and 2, and what they mean. We'll also hear a reading from our Orthodox Library, celebrate the Sunday of the Prodigal Son as we journey towards Pascha, and answer a question on the faith from one of you, our listeners. If you'd like to have your question answered, shoot an email through to tdl at antiochian.org.au. I hope you enjoy the continuation of our series.
1: In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, beloved in Christ, today I will be talking briefly about the first and second antiphons, their history, their origin, their liturgical meanings. As we know, at the beginning of the divine liturgy, we have three litanies, three antiphons, and three prayers preceding the small entrance. To begin, let us look at the history of the antiphons. According to the Webster Dictionary, antiphony means alternate or responsive singing by choir into divisions. It could be a psalm or a verse. So it is an alternate chanting by a choir. These antiphons exist in several forms. The original Greek practice is to use psalms for the antiphons. They beset the verses of the psalms with repeated refrains. During the liturgy for the first antiphonal psalm, the following refrain is sung through the prayers of the Theotokos, or Saviour, Save Us. The second refrain, for the second antiphonal psalm, we sing, O Son of God, save us who sing to you, The origin of the practice of singing these antiphons is to be found outside the church, in the streets where the faithful used to gather to go to the appointed church for the liturgy. What does that mean? It all began when Emperor Constantine emerged from the Civil War as the new emperor. In 313, he proclaimed that every person is free to choose his, her, our religion. Since then, the Church was allowed to emerge from the catacombs and express its faith publicly without fear of arrest, imprisonment, or martyrdom. And so in certain large cities such as Jerusalem, Rome, and Constantinople, the practice began of taking to the streets and holding parades known as liturgical processions. The procession would begin at a set place and then proceed singing all the way to the church where the liturgy will be held. These processional antiphons were so popular that they continued to be sung in church even on days where there was no procession to the Church. Liturgically, let us begin by looking at the great litany that is said after the proclamation of the Kingdom of God, preceding the singing of the Antiphons. This great litany reveals to us God's creation and our care for it. Looking deeply into the supplications, we discover that the power of God becomes visible through his creation. We are praying for the peace of the whole world, the church, the faithful, the clergy, the bishop, the deacon, monks and nuns, sick and suffering, and of course for the captives and their salvation. Interestingly enough, the proclamation asserts that glory, honor, and worship due to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In another word, it is due to God alone. After the proclamation, we start by chanting the first antiphon through the intercessions of the Theotokos, or Savior, Save Us. Through this antiphon, we reaffirm our faith in God, and we ask for the intercessions of the Mother of God on our behalf, this specific refrain is intertwined with the understanding of the Virgin Mary and her role specified in Luke 1.46.55, namely the Magnificat, which is recited at every matins. Yes, as we recite this first antiphon, we are reminded of our Mother, our Heavenly Mother, and the need to continue to learn from her humility and obedience. We are reminded of the sanctity of life, which we read about in Luke 142. Blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. After the first refrain, another little ectenia is said, calling us once again to be mindful of God. Again and again, let us pray to the Lord. God who created the world continued to show his providence and his infinite mercy, which always prevailed. We as faithful must never fail to seek it. Certainly the mercy of God is his infinite love. Moving on to the second antiphon, we hear specifically on Sundays and during Paschal period, Save us, O Son of God, who are risen from the dead, who sing unto you Alleluia. Hearing this antiphon prompts us to once again to remember the prophecies of various prophets such as Isaiah, who say the child will be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14, his name, wonderful counselor 9.6, and other prophecies through which we contemplate. Christ's suffering, his crucifixion, his burial, and of course the climax of his ministry, his glorious resurrection. The second antiphon is truly a reflection of the hearts of the faithful who truly believed in the coming of the Messiah and his suffering and his resurrection. We need to note that on various Feast Days, other Psalms are used with particular relevance to the special occasion. To these Psalms' verses, refrains are added according to the celebration, bringing out the meaning of the Feast. For example, during the Holy Nativity, we say, save us, O Son of God, who was born of the Virgin during the holy entrance who was carried on the arms of Simeon the righteous, and so on and so forth right through all the various high feasts. The prayers offered after the first and the second antiphons, before the proclamation, are not simple prayers. They are a cry to God from his children asking him to preserve us And accept us as we draw closer to him. We ask him to save us and bless us and preserve the fullness of the church by filling us with himself and his glory. We ask him to sanctify us since we love the beauty of his house and come there to worship him. As we place our hope in him, we ask that he abide in us forever, remembering that Christ promised to be present when two or three are gathered in his name, Matthew 18, 20. It is evident that we are the church of the living God, his inheritance, his joy, his covenant people. Nowadays, there are no procession taking place. However, when we do have them on Good Friday and Palm Sunday, we must apply for a permit. Also, a police escort is needed. It is obvious that increasingly we are being herded back indirectly to the catacombs. The war against our faith is real, even if it is undeclared. From the above, we need to learn a lesson that we must raise our children to live counterculturally and to recognize that pretty much everything in our culture pushes them in the wrong direction. Without going into details, we know what is happening with our children at schools and other places. The destructible freedom never been so palatable on all levels. We can say that the way of salvation is definitely not on the menu of the world as we know it. Another lesson to be learned from the antiphons, it is the primacy of praise. We are the people whom God has formed for himself through baptism. We must declare his praise, according to Isaiah forty three twenty one. 21. Today, although antiphons are part of the service itself, they are not a part of a procession, they still form the joyful preparation for entrance into the worship of christ through the word of the gospel and the offering and receiving of holy communion in conclusion as faithful christians praising god is not simply one thing we do it is everything all that we do must be an act of praise for god calls us to offer ourselves to him as a doxology of living flesh and blood. The psalmist sings, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 156. And as disciples of Christ, we strive to fulfill this, making our every action, every thought and intention an offering of praise to our God. Amen.
0: Thank you, Father Nabil, for that insightful talk. And now a series of readings from our Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy neptic fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment.
2: Do not compare yourself with weaker men, but rather apply yourself to fulfilling the commandment of love. For by comparing yourself with the weak, you will fall into the pit of conceit but by applying yourself to the commandment of love, you will reach the height of humility. Saint Maximus the Confessor The person who cannot endure for Christ's sake a physical death as Christ did should at least be willing to endure death spiritually. Then he will be a martyr with respect to his conscience, in that he does not submit to the demons that assail him, or to their purposes, but conquers them, as did the holy martyrs and the holy fathers. The first were bodily martyrs, the latter spiritual martyrs. By forcing oneself slightly, one defeats the enemy. Through slight negligence, one is filled with darkness and destroyed. Saint Peter of Damascus
0: He who thinks that he has achieved perfection in virtue will never go on to seek the original source of blessing, for he has limited the scope of his aspiration to himself, and so of his own accord has deprived himself of the condition of salvation, namely God. Saint Maximus the Confessor On February 12, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate our father among the saints, Militos, Archbishop of Antioch, and new martyr, Christos, of Constantinople. On this day, we make remembrance of the parable of the prodigal son, which occurs in the noble gospel, and which our deified fathers reinstituted in the Tridion. O thou art like me, a prodigal, come forward with the confidence and tranquility, for unto all has been opened the door of divine mercy. In the parable our Saviour tells, Jesus illustrates three things. The condition of the sinner, the canon of repentance, and the knowledge of God's compassion. For in the person of the prodigal son, we view the wretched condition that sin creates for us, distant from God and his sacraments. However, we become aware of ourselves and awaken, hastening the hope to return to him through repentance. Our Saviour wants to call back to his mansions all those who have been overtaken by despair, lacking hope of forgiveness for their grave sins. The Father encourages all of his lost children to remove the desperation from their hearts and revive their energies for virtuous deeds. Through thine ineffable love for mankind, O Christ our God, have mercy upon us. Amen.
2: How often should confession be done?
0: Whenever we speak of confession, we must also speak of repentance. Although confession and repentance are not the same thing, they are both linked. We cannot have good confession if we are unrepentant, and true repentance brings forth an earnest desire for confession. So before we ask how often should we confess, we should first ask, how often should we repent? When we realize that repentance does not simply mean feeling guilty about our sins, but the continual reorientation of our entire lives away from sin and towards God, then the answer becomes quite clear. We are called to repent every day of our lives. As Saint Isaac the Syrian wrote, this life has been given to you for repentance. So given that we should never cease repenting, how often should we confess? As it is always the case in the Orthodox Church, we should not expect to find one single rule that is applicable in all circumstances. For example, Saint Mary of Egypt only confessed once when she finally encountered Father Zosimas after having lived a life of repentance for several decades in the desert. How often we should confess is dependent on our situation, for example our spiritual state, our proximity to a parish, the availability of a confessor, and so forth. It's best if we don't leave it up to ourselves to determine when we should have confession. Perhaps, the most obvious step towards determining how often we should have confession is asking our parish priest or prospective confession father, as they will be able to better judge your individual circumstances. We should also consider the advice and teaching of the Orthodox Church regarding the importance of a life of repentance and frequent confession as a prerequisite for the participation in Holy Eucharist. Ultimately, confession shouldn't be viewed as a duty that is expected of us a set number of times, but rather as a healing mystery given to us by Christ himself, through the apostles, so that we may be loosed from our sins and able to more fully participate in the life of the church. I hope this answers your question. If you'd like to have yours answered, please email it through to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Now, a reading from our Orthodox Library.
2: Understanding Sin. In every sacrament, there is an act of offering. In the Eucharist, we offer bread and wine. In baptism and chrismation, and at the ordinations, we offer ourselves or our children. In marriage, we offer the relationship that has flowered between two people. And in anointing, we offer human sickness and suffering in the sacrament of reconciliation confession it is our own sinfulness that we bring as an offering when we stand before the icons with the priest beside us what should we say what sins must we confess what do we offer and perhaps most importantly how do we discover what we should say These are the questions I will try to answer here. What is sin? Sin is not just breaking the Ten Commandments. We often think of confession as a presentation of a shopping list that indicates the ways we've broken the Ten Commandments. But this approach can lead to confusion. I haven't robbed any banks or murdered anyone. I'm faithful to my spouse and so far I've resisted the temptation to sacrifice my children to idols. Why then does the priest insist I am a sinner and why does the church require that I go to confession when I haven't done anything? The painful truth is that it's possible to keep all the commandments and yet still be in sin. The Ten Commandments largely focus on what we should not do, the famous thou shall nots. God gave them so that he could weave a recently enslaved, nomadic group of people into what today we would call a civil society. These commandments are obvious and in one form or another, universal. Sooner or later, violations will be publicly noticeable. This is true even in the case of adultery. Adulterers may convince themselves that they are being discreet but the damage they inflict on those around them will be felt even if the cause is hidden and it will not stay hidden forever as numbers 32:23 says you have sinned against the lord and be sure your sin will find you out however there is another category of sin that can easily go unnoticed by ourselves and those around us traditionally these are called sins of omission the things we leave out, the things we neglect. These are the hardest kind of sin to recognise and to repent. These are also the sins that drew Jesus' harshest criticism of the Pharisees. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Matthew twenty-three twenty-three. These are the sins for which, in our Lord's parable of the Last Judgment, also known as the parable of the sheep and the goats, the goats are condemned. It is not the wrong things they did, but the good they failed to do, that leads the Lord to say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Matthew 25, 41 and 45 Keeping the Ten Commandments is the necessary but insufficient first step. God expects more. He aims to make us more than law-abiding citizens. He wants to make us saints. He commands us to be holy as I am holy and reminds us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. Matthew 22:37 37 and 39. His aim is nothing less than to restore in us his own image and likeness. Missing the Mark To understand more clearly what sin is, we must look at the word the New Testament and many of the fathers use for sin. Hamartia. This Greek word means missing the mark. For the writers of the New Testament and those fathers who wrote in Greek, sin meant being off target, moving in the wrong direction, aiming for the wrong goal. But what goal should we strive for? Saint Paul writes that we should attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 13. This is the goal. Like Christ, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit and always do the will of the Father. This means that the measuring stick we use when we confess is not how well or how poorly we are keeping the rules, nor is it whether we seem better or worse when we compare ourselves to others. The measuring stick is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus, one definition of sin could be Deliberate, un behaviour. We will see later what this means practically for repentance and confessing our sins. Spiritual Disease When we do something foolish or make a mistake, we often say, well, I'm only human. But human beings, by definition, are creatures made in the image and likeness of God. Being human is not an excuse for weakness and foolishness. It is a call to holiness. Sin is a failure to live up to our high calling. When we are sinful, we fail to be truly human as God wishes us to be.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another installment of the Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at antiochian.org.au. Make sure you join us next week for the continuation of the Divine Liturgy series, where we'll continue learning about the Antiphons and look at the small entrance. Have a blessed day and hope to catch you next week.